starts in three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat, I'm JC Groves. It is good to be here with you on episode number 53, coming to you live from Danville, Virginia, from Anderson, South Carolina, and Statesboro, Georgia. Guys, how's your week been? How things going? Things are going pretty good here. It's still raining. We had two or three days of beautiful sunshine, and now I think it's supposed to rain for like six days, so man... I'm missing that sunshine, 68-degree weather. Man, everything's going good here. Actually, you guys know what I've been going through physically. I went to the doctor um, in Richmond, Virginia, got a thorough checkup, and he said he's 99% sure it's not what the symptoms were at least hinting toward or leaning toward. So the worst-case scenario seems to be off the table and I praise the Lord for that. God is so Amen. absolutely good. Yeah. So glad to hear that, buddy. Brian, we're glad to hear that good news, buddy. You know, fellas, I have started a journey myself that um, I need you guys to hold me accountable to. Um, one of the biggest things that we have here on the RFP is people say that we don't like accountability and that we are just out there making a bunch of claims and we don't like when people push back on us. But I've got something I need you all to hold me accountable to. Because it's been very apparent to me this week at 38 years old that I'm approaching 39. and But it's very apparent that uh, my health has kind of taken a nosedive over the last few years. I've just gotten lazy. I, I My wife was pregnant for a decade, and I said that I got six kids baby weight on the dad's side. So I've started this fit by 40 because I'm almost 40, and I'm starting a journey to get healthy not just so i look physically good because let's be honest that's not hurting uh but we're i'm just kidding i'm on a podcast with nathan cravat what am i talking about look at that hair um but i just want to be physically healthy you know i've been really convicted here lately that you know i mean our body is the temple and i've just not been taking care of the temple and uh, so we have started uh eating healthy exercising and uh i'm just putting it out there guys hold me accountable to this because uh it it I I love me some sweet tea. I mean, I will drink a gallon of sweet tea. <laughs> Papaw from Duck Dynasty ain't got nothing on this boy when it comes to sweet tea. And uh, so we're just on this process now. May 25th my birthday, and so looking at I got a year fit by 40, and uh, y'all hold me accountable to that for real. JC will definitely do that, and I'm I'm kind of right there with you, man. I need to start doing that, but I'm I'm not at the eating healthy and exercising stage. I'm at the talking about it stage. So mm, I'm hoping in yeah. a couple months I'll get to the actually implementing it. it, it you've got to take baby steps in this, man. You can't jump in both feet. I've been talking about it for 30 years, so it's time to I finally start doing something about it. Well, I'm just amazed. This is the first time in my life that somebody's asked somebody who looks like me to hold them accountable <laughs> for getting physically fit. So, yeah, man, I'll do it. I'll be judgmental, 
and I won't live by it, but I'll hold you accountable for it. I've been doing that my whole life. So I think I'll we need to start on the RFP community page. We need to start the dad bod challenge and like just throwing it out there like, you know, hey, let's lose the dad bod. Let's let's get healthy. Let's be around because here's what we're at. We could sit around and in the culture we grew up in, we preached on everything but gluttony. And I think, you know, that's a sin. And we Amen. need to start calling it out. And uh, I'm the biggest glutton of them all. The chief glutton among us is myself. So uh, we're uh, it, it's time to get, get healthy. Well, I hope you have on your 40th birthday great news about being physically fit. But on this episode, I have some great news. And that is that David and Sam Velasquez from the 26 Letters podcast, which is a great podcast. They're they're Let's so go. witty. They're just such a great couple. They're those kind of people. The more you're around them and the more you hear them, the more you love them. And uh, they're joining the RFP family. That Man. is awesome news. They are incredible. Got to meet them at the Idea Summit in Vegas, and those guys are absolutely incredible. So joining up with the RFP Network, it's now the RFWP with Lois and Emily. We got the Church Split podcast with Brian and Will. We've got the PK podcast with John Groves and Eli. We've got the Young Baptist podcast with Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson, and now 26 letters joining us. And man, we are excited as this RFP Network continues to grow. We've got some more of that are rolling in here in the next few episodes, and we are excited that this family of podcasts is just continuing to grow. The consistent sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast has been Free Life Soap. We want you to go check them out. Buy some soap. Buy some beard oil today. Go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the promo tab, Free Life Soap. Use your code RFP at checkout to get 20% off of your order. Nathan, I'm excited about today's episode. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Yeah, we are so excited on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast today to have Jared Wilson with us. Jared, how are you doing, brother? Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous joining you guys <laughs> and the setup here, but I guess otherwise I'm doing okay. Well, awesome, man. I think I would I would question your sanity if you weren't just a little bit worried about us after hearing that intro for the very first time just moments ago. Yeah, well, and and just you know the the opening banter. You guys must spend more time editing this thing than you do actually recording it. I would think you are absolutely right. Yes, you have no idea. You can say whatever you want, and it'll never get aired. Okay. Yeah, we do a little bit of editing on here, but man, we are really excited to have you on today. And we always love to just start off with your story. So tell us who Jared Wilson is. <laughs> wow, uh, <laughs> my, my my autobiography is that what is my you yeah want, my man? Come memoir. on, what you got? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm probably of most relevance to uh, to your audience is that I grew up in the in the church. I grew up in you know Southern Baptist, which maybe for your upbringing w- would be considered pretty liberal. Maybe I don't, I don't, oh, yeah. oh yeah, actually it was yeah. <laughs> Y'all were going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, but but for mine was not. But you know it it was what I would consider kind of vanilla. You know, garden variety, plain vanilla Southern Baptist. Um, you know, raising church Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, Tuesday night visitation, evangelism, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the whole kind of traditional, uh, you know, nine yards. Grew up in Texas, and that's kind of uh, um, you know where my formative sort of sense of discipleship and and and, and spiritual formation came from. Uh, in terms of ju- you know the legalism stuff that you guys talk about, I I would say what we had was the true gospel for conversion, 
the biblical gospel, which was reserved for lost people only. And then once you, once you were saved, you moved on to what was typically called deeper things. And mm. depending on what church I was in or what you know context that church happened to be in, um, you know, deeper things could be all kinds of things. So the deeper things could be, uh, for a long time was eschatology, right? So the timing of the Lord's return and uh, all the charts and, and, you know, movies and everything related to that. That was some deeper stuff. Yep. Uh, sometimes deeper stuff more broadly was about prophecy. Sometimes the deeper stuff was about the predestination free will debate. So, you know, it was just all kinds of things. But the idea in, in terms of, how we were discipled, the kind of discipleship culture we, you know, that I grew up in was really uh, the good news is for the lost. And now that you've got it, your status before God is essentially based on your performance, how, how mm. well you're able to uh, prove your, you know, prove your salvation. So the, the whole idea that sanctification would be in fact driven by the good news, the, the whole idea that uh, the way we become more like Christ is by somehow beholding the glory of Christ that, you know, the gospel is, um, you know, not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. That would be a completely foreign concept, hmm. um, you know, to most folks uh, in the churches that I grew up in. And it's almost like, uh, you you know, you remember in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians where he says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And it's almost mm. as if the churches I grew up in effectively said, yes, <laughs> we, mm. we began by the Spirit, but we are now being perfected by our performance, by our by our good works, by our obedience, all that sort of thing. Sorry. So it's not, you know, the, um, you know, cookie cutter definition or, or the classical definition of legalism in terms of your salvation is based on, you know, your, your efforts or your self-righteousness. But it really um, was kind of a soft version of legalism, kind of a... a uh, you know, the light, you know, 2.0 version, I guess, of, of legalism, uh, where the law is, is seen as the prime power of your sanctification and your present status before God, um, you know, on, on, on a daily basis. So I grew up in that environment, which was not very conducive to um, a confident faith. It wasn't very conducive to any sense of security which you know, which is so ironic. The whole thing is is built around being you know firm and and, and confident and secure, uh, but the end result of always basing your status before God on your performance has to be uh, a root insecurity, or you're being dishonest with yourself, right? Because mm -hmm. who can uh, you know who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only He with pure hands, right? Mm. Um, and that was not me, and I knew that was not me. So I had this hidden mess inside of me. While I outwardly was playing the good, you know, the good religious kid game, and I was a, you know, I was a, a student leader in, in youth groups and uh, president of the Christian club in my high school, and on my on my way pursuing a call to ministry, and so on the exterior I had a lot, you know, going for me, but on the inside I just was, um, yeah, just a just a dumpster fire of. Mm. Um, of fear and insecurity and hidden sin, namely lust and pornography, that I took right into, in fact, right into my marriage and began to kind of poison my relationship with my wife and kind of toxify my marriage even to the point where um, it all crashed down one day, finally, uh, when she decided she didn't want to be married to me anymore. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of 
this uh, struggle for me spiritually. I mean, it, it, it was a new kind of journey, but I, I was plunged into um, really kind of a depression and um, you know suicidal thoughts. And mm. we were living estranged in the same house, you know, not divorced, but just kind of, you know, you know, living separate lives as, as roommates. And um, I was living in the guest bedroom of our home. And, you know, you just pray differently when you're going through something like that. You, you cling to God differently. And I don't remember the exact date, but it was about a year into that existence, just wanting to not exist anymore, wanting, you know, to find some reason not to take myself out of this life that I was face down on the, on the floor in our guest bedroom and just, you know, begging God to do something. And, you know, I've been doing that for countless days and nights, but on this particular night, it was as if the Lord came down. There was a, a, a different um, apprehension that I had of, of the gospel than I had before. So, like I said, I'd heard it all growing up. I, you know, I knew the gospel. I believed I was a believer, but it was as if I was hearing it for the first time. Mm. And in that moment, I realized um, I was awakened to the the startling reality at my worst at you know i i knew what a wretch i was i knew how filthy i was i knew that i had no other option and in that moment the grace of god became so precious to me mm. in 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 the announcement that my status before god even as a believer is not based on anything i can do or not do but Amen. based on what christ has done for Amen. me and it was like, you know, the in, in the story of the prodigal son where he like he came to himself or he came to his senses. Yeah. It, it was like that. I, I came to my senses. And from that moment on, just awakened to the fullness of the gospel, the Lord began to stitch my life back together very slowly, uh, reconciled my marriage, um, mm. began to open up new doors. Um, you know, after this reconciliation and kind of walking in repentance for a while, began to open up new doors for ministry. And so now, you know, the first 10 years of ministry, you know, I was, you know, conducting in kind of this attractional, seeker-sensitive kind of, you know, model. Now I'm just like drunk on gospel. And so I'm, re I'm, I'm rejecting that, <laughs> the, the production values and, and the attractional, you know, type stuff. And I'm recommitting to, um, you know, to the scriptures and, and to um, expositional preaching. But further to proclaiming Christ as the center of all things. Yeah. And, um, and I haven't looked back. I, I, I still feel like, you know, 15 years later, I mean, that was about 15 years ago, still kind of coasting on, on the, uh, you know, the spiritual wake of, of what happened to me in that, in that bedroom. So that's, you know, sort of the short version. I left out a whole lot of details, but yeah, that's kind of the Cliff's notes version of my story. Man, you just shared so much of my story because my wife and I, we were married. I was the pastor. Mm. We were doing our best to pretend and hide a dysfunctional marriage. And the hardest question I've ever been asked was when my wife asked me the question, are you married to me or are you married to the church? Mm. That's the most difficult question I've ever been asked. Thank you for that kind of honesty. And isn't it amazing, guys, that the gospel frees us up to be honest? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Jared, you said at the beginning that that it was kind of an unfamiliar concept to you, the, that the gospel applied to all of life. Uh, one of the most common accusations that we've gotten 
and misunderstandings of the podcast is that when we constantly talk about the gospel and say it's all about the gospel, and really that's the whole reason we started this podcast, is to deal with what is the gospel, most of the people that are still in the world that we walked out of consider the gospel what we would say is the heart of the gospel or the gospel in a nutshell, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, kind of the Romans road, what you have to know to get saved, but they don't really understand what we mean when we talk about it applying to all of life. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I think the best thing to do is, is to just you know, try to reason from the scriptures because that would have been foreign to me um, as well. I, I think the working understanding of how someone matures in the faith becomes more Christ-like, right? That's the goal. Not that we become more religious, but um, that's usually shorthand for becoming more like Christ. Sure. Um, you know, that's what we are aiming for. Well, yeah. how do you get there? And I think the, the default understanding among a lot of, um, you, know, true, you, know, you know, true Christians is that the good news gets you converted and then you begin in your own efforts, through your own um, obedience, through your own righteousness, um, begin to um, obey more and more to, and, and pursue maturity. So, you know, obviously the imperatives, the commands in Scripture are there to be obeyed. I think, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. guys like us are having to fight against what really is a, a kind of antinomianism that has, you know, creeps into some circles where they deny essentially the you know the third use of the law which is you know god says to do something and he really means for you to do it <laughs> yeah uh, so it's not about uh you know when i say i'm gospel centered i don't mean that i'm law denying or law avoiding i mean that i'm gospel centered it means i'm i'm putting uh, i think the biblical order so the first place that i would go is first corinthians chapter 15 because in those first few verses Paul is uh, giving us the nutshell definition, the thing that you just shared, uh, Nate, that kind of, um, you know, the basics, right? The gospel may be more than that. It's more robust than that, but it's certainly not less than the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of Christ. Paul goes on to talk about the witnesses seeing him, the ascension of Jesus, and of course the rest of the chapter going on about the implications of the resurrection. But in that nutshell definition, he says something really fascinating. He says, you received it. Uh, past tense, by which I take him to mean the conversion. You received Christ in some way, right? You um, you asked Jesus into your heart or whatever language you want to use, but you weren't a Christian and now you are. You weren't born again and now you are. So you received it. But then he says, in which you stand, this gospel uh, is the thing in which you stand, present tense. And then he says, you are being saved by it, present, future mm. tense. So clearly the gospel is not just the grounds for that reception or for that conversion, but speaks to beyond conversion into our present standing before Christ. He says, in which you stand. So I take him to mean um, uh, some reference to the imputed righteousness of Christ, that when we are saved, when we are justified by our faith, we're not just uh, forgiven, as wonderful as that is, but we're also clothed in the perfect obedience of Jesus. So we're counted righteous. To be justified is not just as if I'd never sinned, but also just as if I'd always obeyed, which is you know another level up. How how wonderful wow. that we're considered righteous in Christ. So every day I don't have to wonder what does God think about me. Um, is He basing His approval of me on my performance today? No, He's basing mm -hmm. it on Christ's performance for me 
on the cross and out of the empty tomb. And then being saved by, you know, in the gospel, you are being saved. Um, I don't take him to mean you lose your salvation and have to get re-justified. I, I, I think he's talking about the work of progressive sanctification, that we are being, uh, you know, bearing the fruit of the Spirit over time. We're, we're being conformed to the image of Christ over time. And then, of course, that, um, you know, what's in mind is the ultimate glorification uh, when we die or when the Lord returns and we get to see as we're seen and know as we're known. So just those three verses there, 1 Corinthians 15, give us one little glimpse but then you start to see it all over Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter three, I think, is a great chapter because um, Paul upholds the glory of the law. How wonderful and beautiful the law is, um, mm. and how could it not be? It, you know, it it reflects the holiness of God. So the law is not bad. We are bad. The law is not bad. Uh, but he says something really provocative. Basically, the, he says the ministry of righteousness, and he's referring to the gospel. Which in and of, you know, of itself is uh, pretty provocative because if you just ask the average Christian, what's the ministry of righteousness, they'd say probably the law in, in some way or the Ten Commandments or something like that. And Paul's calling the gospel the ministry of righteousness. He says that exceeds the law in glory. But basically, the law is good, but the gospel is better. Mm -hmm. And in verse 18 of Second Corinthians chapter 3, he says it's by beholding the glory of Christ with an unveiled face that we are transformed from one degree of glory into another, into the same likeness. Basically, mm -hmm. how do you become more like Christ? Somehow spiritually seeing Christ, beholding the glory of Jesus. And we could go on and on. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, I think, where he says, uh, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people and training us to renounce unrighteousness. So, like, if that mm. verse wasn't in the Bible and you just ask the average Christian, especially with, you know, uh, backgrounds like yours or maybe even mine, how do you train people to renounce unrighteousness? They'd say, you tell it, like, commandments, law, something like that. And Paul says, no, it's the grace. It's God's grace that trains mm. us to renounce. So those passages and so many more are, are why, um, for me, the gospel law dynamic is really important, and not just so that theologically we have things correct. I think that's important, but more so so that believers can actually mature in Jesus. That's, I mean, that, that's the whole point. We yeah. want the same end. I just want the biblical means to the end. I want people to be, you know, and myself to be more like Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that the kind of obedience that, that really glorifies God is the kind that is done as the overflow, as an act of worship in response to understanding that the work is accomplished by Christ himself. It really is finished. Mm. Jared, one of my favorite things that I ever heard you share in a sermon was actually an illustration. And it was so opposite of what I grew up hearing that the illustration captivated me. You depicted us as a bride standing at the altar with Jesus as the groom, Jesus knowing that we had committed adultery, we would commit adultery, that every day we would commit adultery, and he still accepted us as his bride. You know, we grew up, I think, being shouted at or demeaned or belittled when there was spiritual failure. And I can remember even as a teenager, when I would commit sins or you talked a few moments ago about lust or, or different things, when those things would be present in my life, 
I would be so afraid because I literally believed inwardly that, that God didn't want me, that Jesus didn't want me, that I was such a reject failure, that there was no way the God of heaven would ever want me. And I saw my parents and all of the other people in ministry because of the image that they, that they portrayed, I, I believed they were perfect. Th- these people are amazing. You know, they're God's people and, and I'm a failure. But when you gave that illustration, we're, we're the bride who fails every single day. And yet Jesus still takes us as his own. Can you just expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's working from the idea that, you know, the assumption that Jesus can be disappointed in us. And, and, and I suppose there is a, a way in which we may have some biblical evidence to kind of, spe- you know, grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit and that sort of thing. But the, the idea, the notion that Jesus would be disappointed in us, I think presupposes that he doesn't know who we are and what he's getting into by, mm. by you know, uniting us to himself. So I, I just think Jesus, you know, he comes into the relationship with us completely clear-eyed. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, he is omniscient. There is nothing that you're going to do about which he's going to say, I had no idea you were like that. <laughs> you know, when I drafted you, I really thought you'd be an asset to the organization. I really thought that you would be, um, you know, a stellar addition to the team. But you just keep screwing up. You just keep failing. No, I mean, the heart of Christianity is God loves sinners. It's amazing to me that this is still controversial to say, but yeah. that's Christianity. That's the whole Amen. point. While yeah. we were still sinners, Christ mm. died for us. Amen. For the ungodly, Christ mm. died. So, you know, the idea that there's a given day in which I'm screwing, you know, it, it doesn't make the screw up okay. It's not about excusing sin or anything like that. But, you know, the idea that there's a day where Jesus looks and just thinks, I- I've had it up to here, or like you've reached your limit, you know, presupposes a couple of things. One, that Jesus is somehow ignorant of who we are and what's wrong with us, or that the cross really isn't payment for sin. It maybe it's you know it's 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 somehow insufficient. It'll cover some sin, but you, you've mm. actually exceeded what what the penalty of 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 the cross can pay. And both of those, I think, are uh, if not heresies, borderline heresies. Jesus is omniscient; he sees it all. He knows exactly what you're going to do, say every millisecond into the future. And he wanted you; he saved you. Therefore, he cannot be disappointed in you. I know that's a provocative mm. thing to say, but I believe it. Um, it doesn't mean he's happy about our sin, but it, it means he knows exactly who you are and you're the person that you are the sinner that he died for. But the other, you know, the other part of it is the glorious truth of the cross. I think that's so freeing for a lot of people because in the culture we grew up in, heck, in the, in the church world, there's this performance-based faith that tends to put a people on a lot of, of trajectories they're never going to reach because it's always moving. I, I go down to Planet Fitness. I, I like Planet Fitness. I know it's not a real gym. Come, some call it Planet Weakness. But I go to Planet Fitness. I love it because you can eat pizza on Tuesday while you're walking on a treadmill. It's great. But I, I get down there, and it's almost like the culture. As I'm listening to you say that, Jared, it, it's almost like when I get on the treadmill and walk. So I'm, I'm the old man now. I'll put it at like 2% with a 1% grade, and I'll walk for an hour. But these skinny little freaks get on the treadmill next to me and they crank it up as fast as they can go and they sprint their heart out. 
well, I'm walking. I can do it for an hour. These guys are two minutes in, and they're laying on the ground just dead tired to the world. And that's almost like this, what we have done in this culture, especially that we grew up in, it's like we were on this treadmill at full sprint trying to always just succeed, always achieve, always get ahead. But it's like we were sprinting, and there was no goal. It was always just running, 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 and we were exhausted and tiring and wearing ourselves out. When God said, hey, it's a journey. Just continue. I love you. Man, what you just said, I really think is going to help free a lot of people because they're stuck in this performance-based mentality that yeah. we've got to earn God's favor. We've got to earn God's love. He is a good father that knows us. He knows everything about us, and he still loves us. I've heard that said, mm. but man, when you believe that, it changes who your identity is in him and yeah. not just what you want it to be in him. Yeah, I mean, and the, the counterintuitive thing is that um, it gives you the freedom to obey now as an act of worship and yes. as an act of gratitude instead of as leverage or some kind of trying to earn credit. I mean, th that mm. route is just the route to burnout and to insecurity mm. and timidity to know that the work is finished. And now our obedience is is simply the result of being set free. Yeah. Um, gosh, it, it just it, it, it's like wind underneath the, you know, it's uplift. Yeah. Um, at, at yeah. Least I became better at evangelism, uh, became more zealous in spiritual disciplines, um, you know, go on and on. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking through some of our listeners' kickbacks and some of the questions. Yeah, but if you believe that, what about this? So, so we grew up in a culture where there are holiness standards. Mm -hmm. And I think we all agree that standards aren't necessarily bad. Traditions aren't necessarily bad. We all have them. You know, I, I want my kids to dress a certain way. I don't want them to dress certain ways. There are places I want them to go and don't want them to go. Certain movies I'll let them watch and certain movies I won't let them watch. But those are principles that come through Scripture and through prayer and through the Holy Spirit and through wisdom but I, a lot of our listeners say basically that we have rejected personal holiness, that they have taken their music standards, which say they can only sing hymns, no syncopation, no beats, no worldliness, nothing that appeals to the flesh, almost to the extent of it can't be enjoyable in church or it's sinful. <laughs> and then they have dress codes that are not found in Scripture. Their applications taken from the Old Testament that women can't wear things that apply to a man, and, and that means women can't wear pants, and a random verse about length of hair turning something that Paul said was a shame into a sin. So they have all these personal standards of holiness for, for themselves, and they enforce them on the people that join their churches, and we know this from experience. Mm -hmm. And they look at guys like us, and they say, well, you say you've been set free, but you're just excited about being able to do whatever you want to do and live for the lust of the flesh. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things that I would say. The first is for things that are essentially extra-biblical, cultural kind of standards, um, I would say that's a, that's a kind of worldliness in and of itself. I think it's, it's somewhat ironic. Come on, it's, yeah. It's basically taking uh, you know, new or, or more recent standards, well, you know, sometimes traditional things, things that, that look historical, but you know, in, in terms of the scope of, of church history and, and biblical history, are relatively new. A lot of these standards are things that came about through, uh, you know, even in the, the early 20th century or, or later, as yeah. these are the marks of, you know, traditional religion. Um, and, and that's a kind of taking cues from culture 
to, to dictate. It's also somewhat, I think, similar. Um, I know this probably sounds cliched, but it's similar to the Pharisaical tradition of yeah. creating these extra biblical external markers of behavior or custom or dress or observance of certain days or all those sorts of things as your evidence of, of personal holiness. So that's the first thing I would say is I, I, it's not any less worldly just because you say it's religious um, or, or it's not overtly sensual. It's still pretty fleshly because our heart yearns for works. Our, I mean, our flesh yearns for works. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of outward self-righteousness is itself, a, you know, a kind of worldliness. But the other thing that I would say um, is that the, the, the worldliness that we are called to combat um, has characteristics, has standards of holiness that come with it. So if you're looking biblically to say, okay, what does personal holiness look like? If it doesn't look like not playing cards or not listening to this music or those sorts of things. And it might for individual people, right? I mean, you, you know, your conscience may sure. you know, prevent you. It could be a sin for you to do some of these sure. things, dress in these certain ways or listen to these certain things. But what, is, you know, what biblically does holiness look like? Well, I think it's pretty clear that it's, uh, um, you know, for instance, in um, Galatians, the, the fruit of the spirit, Galatians chapter five, mm. that holiness looks like gentleness and self-control and peace. It's about the quality of the heart. So, I mean, Jesus had a lot to say about people who looked good on the ex, on the outside, but did not have transformed hearts. So, um, you know, that would be my sort of standard of holiness is to say, how are you doing not with what, you know, what movies and all that sort of thing that you're you know paying attention to? That's probably an important question. I'm not discounting that entirely. You know, what you dwell your mind on, you know, will affect you and impact you. But more importantly, how are you doing with peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, you know, kindness, mm. goodness? Um, those are things you can't fake. Yeah, you can't put on a certain outfit and 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 suddenly that's your evidence <laughs> of, of gentleness. Um, and some of the most externally holy, if you want to use that word, people that I've known in my church upbringing, some of the most uh, um, you know rigorously um, law-abiding people, religious people, were also some of the, the most unchristlike mm. when it came to their disposition. Mm. Um, That's the truth. They were harsh. They were impatient. They were cruel. They seemed to take joy in lording their righteousness over others, all of which are, are, are antithetical to Jesus himself. Mm. Jared, I just heard a story this week from an older pastor. He received a call from another pastor and he started sharing his story. His dad was well-respected in the church. His dad was, as a matter of fact, a pastor. He traveled all over the country in revival meetings. And, you know, in our tradition, men weren't just referred to as pastors. You were introduced as the man of God, which elevated the requirement of people to respect you and and to never feel that they could question you or else they would be questioning God. But the home he grew up in, the dad sexually abused his two daughters. And the gentleman who was telling the story, sharing the story, was beaten repeatedly so badly, at times beaten until he was unconscious. And his sister, in the end, took her own life, couldn't live with it. Uh, 
but on this level of interaction with other people in the church, there was this display of holiness and it was artificial. It was never real. I, I think what you're sharing right now is so spot on and our audience needs to hear what God just gave you to share from his word. Mm. That was powerful. Yeah. And I, th- I think it goes back a lot of times to separatism. We just addressed the difference in fundamentalism and separatism. I think a lot of these ideas of personal holiness get back to this idea that culture is just evil in and of itself, anything that is of this world. So have you had any experience with hyper-separatism or seen that lean towards and lend itself towards legalism in the church? Yeah, I mean, I'm certain not to the extent that you brothers have, um, but you know, but I've seen shades of it here, and in fact, um, at, at my last church, at my last pastorate, we had um, actually an influx of some folks from a Reformed Baptist background, which I, I think, to a great extent, some of them were coming out of a very toxic environment, and they were kind of trying to shed off, you know, keep what was good, but shed off some of these cultural expectations. And I, and, and I remember being asked um, by this dear lady, um, about movies and, um, you know, music and different things like that. And, you know, she wasn't completely, you know, satisfied <laughs> w- with my answers, which is to say, yeah, there are bad movies out there and there are good movies out there. And, but the, you know, the, I think the Lord has given us a mind and a spirit of discernment for uh, a reason. And if it's, if it's better for you and your conscience to just avoid all of them altogether, um, then, then you need to obey that. I certainly, I'm not going to tell you to disobey your own conscience, but the idea then that you would extend, um, you know, that to others, that it becomes now a binding law on others is actually more burdensome than, than you think that it is. Um, and, and her, you know, her comment was, um, what we were just talking about. She basically said, what about personal holiness? Mm. And so it was a good opportunity to talk about what biblically um, holiness actually looks like and how Jesus at every turn um, was was really pushing against the idea that holiness could be demonstrated simply by the external dress or external customs and external behaviors, but, but was really uh, characterized by a heart that was for God. And the only thing that can get at the heart, the law cannot do that. The law has, has no power except for condemnation. The only thing that can uh, um, empower us to obey the law in in ways that glorify God is actually the good news that we are wow. set free. You have to know you're set free from the law to, yeah. in effect, be set free to the law. Like what JC was just saying mm-hmm. earlier about you know for, you know being set apart for good works. Um, you have to know that you're set free from them to see the the joy in being set free to them and 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 for mm-hmm. them. I love this statement you made. The blood of Christ is too precious not to apply it to our own doorpost. Mm -hmm. When we start applying the blood of Christ to our lives uh, in every way, in every area, all of life is completely transformed. Uh, I love that statement. Do you want to just share uh, what was behind that statement in your heart? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it was for me a, um, just a way of trying to express just how precious it is, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ, that, that I thank God that I don't just have a blank slate. 
you know, and then and then was left to my own devices, right? Um, I mean, it's to be forgiven of all of your sin is is uh, you know worth celebrating for all eternity in and of itself. But if the Lord had just wiped the slate clean and then said, "All right, let's see what you got," it would take me a millisecond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. tarnish that yeah. slate. I mean, look how, yeah. I mean, just the pride of having been forgiven, you know, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, having that blank slate, but it wouldn't take me long to dirty that up. So the very fact that he doesn't just wipe it clean, but inscribes on it, the obedience of Jesus, that I'm actually found in him. Mm-hmm. I have died with Christ and been risen with Christ. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, my life is hidden with Christ in yes. God. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's just to me, it, it was a callback to, you know, of course, the Passover event and in, in trying to see when the when the when the word of condemnation comes, whether it comes internally just from my own insecurity or it comes from the accuser. You know, God can never love you. God doesn't want you. You know, you're too messed up. You're too much of a sinner, et cetera, et cetera. When the word of the accuser comes, I, I point to the finished work of Christ, which covers me, the blood that's on my doorpost. The next mm. step, though, um, you know, however, and, and something we've been kind of touching on is that we would actually see the blood on the doorpost of our brothers and sisters, you know, um, mm. you know especially in the church, because so much wow. of the judgmentalism and the putting these external burdens on others is a failure to acknowledge that they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ also. Mm. Yeah, and so we have you know we have biblical exhortations to uh, you know reprove each other, perhaps even rebuke each other. There you know certainly is the prescription for church discipline for unrepentant sin, all those sorts of things. But we have very clear commands about how we're to treat our brothers and sisters in the community of faith. Outdo one another, showing honor. Romans twelve ten, Romans fifteen. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I want to look mm-hmm. at my brothers and sisters in 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 church not as uh, disappointments to me, not as people that I need to be pushing around and 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 telling what's what, but you know treating them as Jesus treated me, which you know prompts the question: How did Jesus treat me? With welcome, with eager grace, with mm. joy, um, with with uh, brotherly affection. That's how I want to treat my brothers and sisters. And imagine wow. if we if if our churches felt like that, um, what what kind of environments they would be if they actually. Yeah showed that we believe this good news stuff. Wow, man. It's powerful stuff. Hey, Jared, today is Wednesday, March the 10th. And so just a couple days ago, in fact, last Tuesday, you had a brand new book come out called The Gospel Driven Ministry. And uh, that's an introduction to the calling and the work of a pastor. You want to talk about that book real quick? Yeah, I'm really excited about that, actually, because it's it, it's kind of the culmination of uh, my last 15 years of ministry or so and trying to basically outline... Uh, what a um, uh, you know pastoral ministry driven by grace looks like. So it's a yeah. it's a combination of uh, pastoral reflections, kind of soul work, kind of looking at the spiritual formation of a pastor, but also lots of practical stuff like um, you know how to prepare sermons, how to preach funerals, how to uh, yeah. uh, conduct counseling sessions, all those sorts of things. So. Um, yeah, thanks for asking That's about awesome. it. Awesome, about it. And everybody needs to get a copy of the Gospel According to Satan. That okay. is an amazing book. By the way, a really provocative title, but an amazing book. And tomorrow on all of our social media platforms, we're going to be running a giveaway to get two of Jared's books. So we're going to be giving away two books. You can go to our social media platforms tomorrow. And uh, man, we are so excited that you came on with us today. This has been some deep, very rich uh, content today. 
Jared, I, I feel like I could listen to you talk all day. And I actually have done that before, listening to your books and listening to your sermons. But thank you for sharing. It seemed like that was just five minutes. I can't believe it's almost been an hour. But I would love, if we can get your permission, I think, guys, we should follow this episode up with a sermon by Jared to let our listeners hear a little bit more about him talking about the gospel. Do we have your permission to do that, Jared? Sure. Awesome. Awesome. So tune in next week, March the 17th, for week two of Jared Wilson. We're going to be playing an incredible sermon that's going to follow up this uh, softball that he pitched himself to hit out of the park next week. And so, Jared, we are so glad that you came on with us today. I know our folks are going to be blessed by hearing uh, this message today. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you, brothers. This was more fun than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, we're glad to hear it. Hey, I got to know, do you ever get mistaken for Ted Cruz down there in Texas? Oh, brother, you just, you just blew it. You just blew it. The answer is yes. let it last I, too long. And I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I mean, I got on here. I was running a little late to the podcast today, and I jumped on and saw you. I was like, well, that's Ted Cruz and not Jared Wilson. I mean, you know, 35 pounds ago, it was uh, Tony, Tony Romo and... Oh, Maybe. yeah, I can oh, see yeah. that. I like those yeah. compared a lot, a lot oh, better. Oh, man. Well, there you go. I see the Tony Romo, definitely. That's my dad awesome. was in a hotel a little while back. It was a big hotel in a major city, and everybody's always thought he was Bill O'Reilly. And so yes. he, used to, he used to hate that. Why do people think I'm Bill O'Reilly? And my dad's sitting eating breakfast, and uh, this, this lady came up, and she was very nice, and, and she just said, is it okay if I have your autograph? <laughs> and my my dad said my autograph, and she said, "Well, you know, I love to watch your television program. I've always wanted to meet you." And because she was the former Miss America, he suddenly didn't mind being called Bill <laughs> O'Reilly anymore. That's funny. Oh, all man. I get is, "Are you Goldberg?" I'm like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me, man! Come on, it's all right." Enjoy being bald with a beard. You look like a WWF wrestler. Hey, let's get out of here before this goes downhill any further. Guys, thanks for being here with us on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Check out our sponsor, Free Life Soap. You can go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. Guys, I'm looking forward to next week as we get to hear Jared bring the word. Thanks for being here with us. Y'all have a great week. Be sweet. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.